from beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. This is Returns on Wellbeing, the podcast that brings you the latest and best thinking from today's business and healthcare leaders. We share strategies, tactics, and information to help employers boost their bottom lines and address two of their biggest concerns, the cost of healthcare coverage and the engagement of their workforce. To guide us on this quest, here's our host, Jim Purcell. Welcome to Returns on Wellbeing, and thank you for joining us. I'm Jim Purcell. Today we have with us Saul Kaplan, the founder and chief catalyst of the Business Innovation Factory located in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. Saul started BIF in 2005 with a mission to enable collaborative innovation. BIF is a nonprofit which creates a real-world laboratory for innovators to explore. It tests new business models and systems-level solutions in areas of high social importance, which of course includes healthcare. Prior to founding BIF, Saul served as the executive director of the Rhode Island Economic Development Corporation. At the same time, he also served as the executive counselor to the governor of the state of Rhode Island on economic and community development. Prior to his Rhode Island leadership role, Saul served as a senior strategy partner in Accenture's health and life sciences practice. He also spent eight years with Eli Lilly, so he has an extensive healthcare background. Saul shares his innovation thoughts on Twitter at SKAP5, his blog, and as a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Fortune, and Bloomberg Business Week. BIF's website is businessinnovationfactory.org. Saul, it's good to have you here today. Hey, Jim. How are you? It's great to, great to talk to you. Way too long an introduction. It makes me sound like I've actually done something, for heaven's sakes. Oh, I think, I think you have done something, and I think that's what we're going to explore today. I'm glad to be with you today. Excellent. As uh, uh, Tell us a little bit about BIF, Saul. Well, BIF is uh, kind of a labor of love. It's, uh, you know, it's my passion project. It's uh, an entity that we created now. This is our 13th year, and most simply, uh, it's a community of innovation junkies, people that want to go beyond tweaks to the way things work today to actually explore transformation. How do we make transformation safer and easier to manage? And we pick uh, a lot of the thorniest uh, social system challenges, uh, little things like healthcare, education, and government uh, to work in. And so we've got lots and lots of black and blue marks on how do we enable leaders, what types of uh, leadership uh, do we need in this new uh, 21st century uh, environment, what tools and practices, uh, and how do we take ideas uh, off of the whiteboard and consulting decks and put them on the ground to prototype them and see what what works. So it's it's been a really interesting ride. And all of a sudden, a lot of leaders know that the way they currently go about innovation is producing tweaks and not really setting themselves up for transformation. So there's a lot of demand uh, for what we're doing right now. When you talk about business innovation and transformation, uh, I I know enough about uh, my relationship with you to know that you're talking about leapfrogging over existing business models to something new. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, I, you know, we, I learned this the hard way, right? Because I watched a lot of leaders uh, trying to create environments or what they'll call a culture of innovation. And, you know, they'll mobilize uh, practices and tools and departments. You know, everybody, every every big, large organization now, you know, has an innovation strategy, an innovation program. Most of them have some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, in, innovation leaders and departments. But then when I really dug into it, what I found is most of what happens is important but not sufficient if the goal is transformation. What do I mean by that? Right? We, we're really good at, at changing things incrementally by taking the way things work today and making them incrementally better. And we should do all those things. But the problem that we're facing is we really need entire new models or ways to create, deliver, and capture value for the customer. Like I know we're going to talk a lot about healthcare. I mean, we need a transformation not just incremental change to the way it's already worked. You know, we need to go from sick care, you know, to family well-being and well care at the center. And as you know, that's not an incremental change or a tweak. That's a transformation. And how do we actually do that? So uh, I'm all about how do we make transformation safer and easier? How do we manage for transformation, right? Because we don't seem to be capable of doing it. And I think we can break it down and actually make progress towards transformation and that's what we do here at Biff. Very good, very good. As you know, Saul, I'm writing a book which uh, I hope to call Returns on Well-Being. Its its premise is that employees are becoming increasingly unhealthy and chronically ill and that today's workplace wellness programs have not worked despite American employers spending over eight billion dollars a year on such efforts. And My premise is we need to leapfrog over workplace wellness to a newer, innovative approach. Uh, Today's wellness efforts don't work because they're not comprehensive, they're not strategic, the focus is mostly on physical health, and the CEO is missioning in action. My premise is to change this, we first need to create cultures of well-being at the workplace and then implement programs addressing specific needs. Is this consistent with what you've learned in your work about culture, about transforming social systems? Well, first, uh, yes. Uh, so hurry up and write the book. Uh, we need <laughs> it because I, I agree with your premise. Uh, but I want to build on that a little bit in our conversation. I mean, the reason The reason we are where we are is because all of the great progress made on understanding what wellness is about and how we enable it, uh, all the well-being work at, that we've done you know, across uh, the society has all been a bolt-on to what I call the sick care system. So it's been, here's the way healthcare works. It's, it was designed to, to enable us to care for the sick, right? When I get sick, this is what we do, right? It is a very high-priced system. It continues to gobble up new technology to make our approach to treating people when they get sick better. What it isn't is a well care system. So mm-hmm. all the wellness stuff is an after the fact, you know, kind of bolted onto a system designed for sick care. What we need to do if we want to be about well being, which is exactly where we should be, the premise of your book, we've got to understand how models work where well being and wellness are not bolted on on the periphery of a sick care model, but are central to a new model. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we enabling people 
locals, citizens, employees, right, to to take better care of themselves uh, so that they either are mitigating the implications of a chronic illness or preventing illness in the first place. We're never going to be able to afford health care for all until we put well-being at the center and enable our citizens to be agents of their own well-being. And so we should be designing a system, a, a set of tools, a flow, information flow, and a payment model that puts well-being at its core. And instead, we have this model that treats it as an afterthought, doesn't yep. pay for it, you know, doesn't treat it centrally. So we've been all about what would it look like? What would a model that was centered on well-being look like? And could we actually stand it up at a small scale before we start thinking about how it might work across the whole country? And I think we're in the mess we're, we're in today because we don't really have the space for that exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, and we think that we're going to change the sick care system incrementally, you know, with some magic solution, some new technology, yep. some new law, you know, coming uh, out of Washington. We certainly see this today, you know, and it's just not so. It's not going to happen that way. And so we come the other way. We, we look at it from the experience of the citizen or patient and say, if we imagine a system with well-being at its core, what does that look like? How would it work? And is it economically viable? Right. And my book and my thesis starts by using the workplace. At least there we have approximately 150 million Americans each day reporting to work. And we have their attention, and most employers have means of keeping their attention and communicating with them. Um, the book also makes the point, yes, we have a broken delivery system, but um, corporate America, you're, you're not going to fix that. So why don't you take care of what you can help to change, which is the well-being of your employees? Does that seem to be somewhat in line of what you're saying as a start? I think it's an important part of the solution. I don't think it's the whole story. I do think sure. that employers, right, are are central to the way healthcare works. Right, uh, mm -hmm. a big percentage of us get our healthcare insurance. You know, the the way our insurance uh, healthcare is paid for because of where we work. Not everybody, and that's changing, right? But for the for I don't think we we should let employers off the hook for being a stakeholder in this. And and so, therefore, I think they should be an important part of the solution. Sure. But I don't think that just fixing the well-being piece, you know, for for employees and not making changes to the way the healthcare system works more broadly, you know, is going to get us there. I still yep. think we've got to go look at the whole model. But I do believe that we can initiate some really good experiments with with employers, you know, as drivers because they have a vested interest because mm -hmm. sure you know, it's cost, these premiums are going up. They're having to push more and more uh, to the employees in the form of co-pays and deductibles, uh, and it's not sustainable, so something has to give. Yep. Um, any other thoughts about why workplace wellness to date has been such a failure? I know you've you've linked it to sick care, and, and I would agree with that, and a, a lot of this is about... Uh, facilitating the ability of employees to 
take their care and their health in their own hands. But any other ideas of why yeah. workplace wellness has been such a failure? Well, I think it's been a failure because it's it's totally been a bolt-on. I think more mm -hmm. employers are starting to say, what does that model actually look like? I mean, if you really think about it, and you know this coming out of the industry, I mean, basically, large employers are self-insuring, right? Yep. And then they're passing the costs uh, of that of doing that, you know, based on their population that they're trying to insure out to the employee itself. And it's breaking as the premiums are moving up and up and up. A lot of people love to point the finger at the insurer. You know, the, but but you and I both know that most of these things are self-insured, where the insurer is just processing claims, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've got to get to the root cause of this thing, which is what's driving utilization and costs, and how do we put the employee more in the driver's seat about the utilization and costs in yep. a way that's helpful to them? Because exactly. right now it looks like you know we never had to pay for this before as in consumer. Our employer, you know, kind of financed it, right? And then as co-pays and deductibles went up, all of a sudden, even those are becoming out of reach, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of people, right? And so uh, th this is the same problem that that people that do not get insurance through their employee employer, you know, have that this a problem multiplied times five times mm -hmm. ten. Right. So it's the same problem and the progress is going to come through different models that integrate well-being with sick care in a very different way and finance that in a very different way than we do that today. And so I'm fine with a lot of these experiments happening, you know, sponsored by employ employers. I think it's a great place to work. Mm hmm. Yep. And, and for sure, there is much that the delivery system can do as well. We know that upwards of one third of all of our in excess of three trillion dollar cost per year is waste and error. But um, at least I'm trying to focus on things that are within the employer's yep. power to do. Well, you, uh, you, you, you and I also both know that there's 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 probably just as many employers out there, companies out there, that would be just as happy, you know, to have a single payer system that took them off the hook, where <laughs> where where they didn't have to do any of this, you know, they could get back to focusing on creating value for their customers, you know, and not worried about this because someone else took the problem on, and yeah. th that's the debate we have in this country about: Are we heading towards single payer, or are we going to continue to have mm -hmm. this system? where employers are still going to have a lot of ownership, you know, for how their employees uh, create healthier futures. Yep. yep. And my thesis is even if we do go to single payor and employers no longer pay for the health care coverage of their employees, they still have a huge stake in employee well-being because That's of true. engagement, productivity, turnover, absenteeism, morale, and competitive advantage. I assume you'd agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, on a slightly different subject, uh, I, I'd like you to weigh in on, in any transformation of social systems or business innovation, do you believe CEO personal involvement is important? And if so, why? And if not, why? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, not only important, it's imperative. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do incremental change you know, at lower levels in the organization. There's all kinds of examples of mid-level managers and departments and skunk works and people that innovated uh, you know, you know, without asking for permission to innovate. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you talk about transformation, you know, com you know, completely reimagining the entire business model, um, you know, of how you combine capabilities to deliver to a customer, you can't do that without leadership being instrumental and supportive and running interference for people that are going to lean against it and are scared by the distraction and the disruption. So I believe the CEO should own this agenda, yeah. right? And this is what's changing because when I first started doing this you know, now, you know, here at BIF 13 years ago, if one out of 10 leaders was ready right to, to go from what I call share taking to market making right the share taking being the incremental change you know who do I compete against how do I protect or grow my market share to we better be market makers create mm -hmm. entire new ways uh, to deliver value to our customers the leader the CEO should be the champion for that the COO should be driving today's business model and the CEO CEO should be focused on what's next. That's where we are and aren't where we're heading, you know, but the, there's still far too many CEOs that don't understand that. If, if it was one out of 10, 13 years ago, I think today it's three to four out of 10. Mm -hmm. So uh, more and more of them are starting to get it. Uh, but there's still a big chunk that say, you know, this, this approach, this business model will take me to the end of my career. And then I'll let the next CEO worry about, you know, creating an entire new or different business model. Yep. Uh, so that's what I mean when I say here at BIF, we're trying to make it safer and easier to manage. How do we enable more CEOs on the margin to be able to lead a transformation process while they're still peddling the bicycle of the way it works today? Yep. And we've been learning how to do that and building the methodology and tools uh, to do that here at BIF. Very good. Um, in, in terms of healthcare as an industry, uh, any thoughts on how it differs from other industries or should it? Well, yeah, people always say, because we work in three social systems. So uh, here at BIF, you know, we work in healthcare, as we've talked about. We work in education mm -hmm. and we work in government and public services. So we, we work on citizen-centered uh, innovation, patient-centered innovation, and student-centered you know, innovation. And people always say, my, my system is different, right? You know, healthcare is completely mm -hmm. different than and the people in education say, our system is different. And the people in government, you know, say, the same thing. I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, of course there are differences, but the truth is all of these things, you know, are are run by institutions that were designed for a different error and have become, you know, the industrial error. Uh, and all of them deliver services in what I call a push mode. We develop a set of services, you know, and then we get frustrated when students, you know, aren't excited about and feel in control of their own education or patients aren't in control of their own uh, health care or citizens aren't uh, more in control of what happens in their own communities. And so uh, we've learned a lot across those three systems about what does it take to mobilize and to start by proto 
prototyping and figuring out how these new models can create a sense of agency with the different customer groups that could reshape these institutions. And that's the path that we're on. So I like to think horizontally across the three systems uh, and take what we learned from one. So this work we did in Dallas is informing work we're doing to help transform education systems around the country yeah. or work trying to transform public service and government models you know, across the country. Yep. It's interesting. If you substituted for the educational system, the healthcare system, you probably could have said the same words, couldn't you? That, that's my point from your previous question, which hey. is that what we learn about how to enable transformational change, you know, because people, when they hear the word transformation, they think that it's a, you know, stop doing everything you're doing today and start doing it completely differently. Change does not work that way, right? It just doesn't, you know, and I don't care how urgent, I mean, What's more urgent than change, you know, in our healthcare system mm -hmm. today, right? So it's not just urgency, right? It's about how do we make it safer and easier to manage, right? How do we do the exploration work at the model level? How do we do R&D for new models? And we stop doing that. We do R&D for new technology and new products, but we don't do it at the model level. And we have to get much better at it. And you're absolutely right. The same exact thing is true in all these large social systems that were designed for an industrial error that has gone by the wayside. Mm -hmm. uh, let me follow up on something you just said. You said for business innovation, it doesn't mean you have to change everything you're doing. Well, what is it that you do have to change? You have to create the safe space or what we call the conditions to be able to do the R&D. Now, when people hear the word R&D, they think it's about some new shiny technology, mm -hmm. right? And I, I, I love shiny technology like anyone, but the truth is we have more technology available to us today. It's amazing. We're like kids in a candy store. It's not the technology that's in our way. It's us humans and the stubborn organizations that we're in. We don't know how to explore a different model a different way to create, deliver, and capture value. And that's what we should be doing the exploration work on to put us in a better position to know what works and what doesn't work. What should we scale? Like, when should we go through more significant change? Because we have a model that's worth changing to. Instead, what we do is we, we think we can analyze our way there and we write reports stacked up to the sky, you know, that aren't creating the impetus for change. What we should be doing, you know, is doing it in a generative way, right, to more rapidly designing and prototyping and testing these models so that, so that we can figure out how to invest in what scales. The other mm -hmm. thing we have to do is the industrial error led us to believe that there's a one-size-fits-all model, that the answer is one model and everybody needs to conform to it. You know, and this is what's painful about healthcare and education and government. It turns out, you know, that we're capable of way more than one model, right? But we haven't, through the industrial error, figured out like this was the winning model. So everybody needed to conform to how we educate in public schools, right? Why can't we have a proliferation of lots of models, some that, that work for, for certain cohorts of students and others that work for others? Too many people are being left behind by the large industrial error models in healthcare and education and government. Right. And we should, this is an error of what I call business model proliferation. We should be allowing more models 
cells to emerge and to scale to the appropriate size. And then the the last thing I'll say is we got to stop resisting and blocking new models from coming in because you know what happens. The incumbents like the current set of models because that's how they compete. Yeah, and if you're the winner today, you know, you're the leading healthcare provider in an area, you, you spend way too much time trying to prevent competition or new models from coming into space. We've got to get better as leaders at saying, let's encourage new models. In fact, let's create them ourselves. And this is what's getting in the way of solving the problem. Last question. Uh, you call yourself the chief catalyst. Uh, you don't call yourself the president and CEO. Why is that? Yeah, I, uh, if you ever get a chance to create your own title, uh, you know, after living in corporate and consulting environments for a long time, uh, when I when I founded Biff, I, I said I've got to send a message to myself on what mm-hmm. kind of kind of leader I want to be. And I remember back to my high school and college chemistry classes where I learned about what a, I learned about catalysts or enzymes, mm-hmm. you know, that initiate uh, uh, new reactions. You know, they get a reaction started and then they don't get used up so they live to fight another day and i really like that uh, analogy so it's a reminder to me that uh, leadership in the 21st century is about catalyzing a reaction enabling people around you you know to be their best selves and then to get the hell out of the way and so uh, it reminds me every day uh, and it's uh, it allows us for some pretty interesting conversations over the years about uh, just like you asked me, why did I call myself that? Uh, mostly for me, uh, but also it enables me to deliver a message about what I think transformation is about and what kind of leadership is required. That is innovative. And that concludes our podcast today of Saul Kaplan, the Chief Catalyst of Business Innovation. Saul, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you, Jim. All right. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Returns on Wellbeing. To subscribe to this podcast series, visit www.returnsonwellbeing.com, where you'll find resources to help organizational leaders achieve tangible returns on well-being.